0: Welcome to another episode of the Lay Bear podcast, an audio experience designed to decode leadership and inspire action. Being a forward-thinking leader and game-changer, you've tuned in to discover pragmatic tips and hints on leadership from the very best leaders. Each episode is dedicated to sharing pragmatic stories from the field and, more importantly, real examples of what successful leaders are actually doing to deliver at pace. With so much to share, let's hand over to your host, graham wilson i'm really delighted to welcome today's guest who is an experienced leadership coach and change agent she has significant experience leading teams and delivering complex change projects awarded the obe for her work on the 2012 olympic and paralympic games she has many insights to share with us around the importance of leading with meaning so a big welcome to jess Anderson. so welcome to so jess it's uh, great to have you on board Really, really excited to learn about you and um, more importantly about the lessons you learned and also about Leading with Meaning. What a great title and particularly in today's world, it's really, really important. So just so we uh, get to know a little bit more about you, Jess, and, and your journey, could you perhaps share with us you know, your, your highlights of your journey so far? I know it's been really exciting. You've done amazing things. So it'd be great to get an insight on that.
1: Yeah, of course, and um, and firstly, thank you so much, Graham, for, for having me on today. It's great to be able to talk about some of this stuff. It it's um really close to my heart, really matters to me. So uh, yeah, really, really good to be here. So um so I guess my kind of my work journey. Um, I mean, going way back when i was thinking about this a couple of days ago my my very first job was when i was 13 and i've probably worked or had some kind of sort of paid employment all the way along through that so i was uh, working in uh, you know as a, as a as a chambermaid in a bed and breakfast that was opposite my house and i think that kind of gave me my first taste for you know doing a hard day's work and giving some kind of service and being part of a team and an organization so I'm not sure I've got too many leadership lessons from uh, from from you know my 13 year old self but I, but I think it definitely kind of stood me in good stead
0: well being, um, being of service is a good one that's a good start isn't it that's that's uh, yeah. I mean, really really important
1: yeah absolutely and um there there was one particular sort of member of the team i think she worked there more or less full-time whereas obviously at at 13 um i was only sort of doing a sunday and then then occasionally a saturday and a sunday but she was um yeah she she was a real one for um uh i I guess kind of in in today's language we'd say customer experience we Mm -hmm. we certainly weren't talking about customer experience back then but um and yeah understanding what the customer wanted and how how the process was going to feel and kind of preempting that um that and, and, and making it as good as she could so so yeah so actually perhaps i did learn start learning some lessons mm-hmm. at that young age um and when I, I graduated, I did a um, I did an undergraduate degree in politics and Spanish. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And my first role after graduating was on the civil services fast stream, and that was just brilliant. So it you know the whole purpose of it is you know we, we think you've got high potential. We're going to put you in situations with a lot of variety, push you out your comfort zone, and and you know see what happens. And that was brilliant. So within six months, I was managing a project. I was managing a team. Um, I was you know, kind of really finding my feet as to what I wanted to be. But I was also learning a lot about organisations. So I was this was part of the Home Office. um, And it was during the time that John Reed was Home Secretary. And and obviously, you know, the the Home Office is not fit for purpose. So you're in an organisation which is really quite... um, sort of uh you know under the cosh feeling like nobody loves it feeling like it's doing wrong at every turn the whole foreign national prisoners um crisis was a you know a a terrible situation but as somebody who was relatively junior learning about what it meant to be in that kind of organization and how it felt to be a member of a team how it felt to be a you know a new line manager trying to give some kind of um structure and consistency and comfort to, to my team um yeah really interesting and also about the kind of the the, the kind of the interesting things around organizational culture because um I did different roles, so I did a policy role, an operational role, um, a kind of a project management role, and again getting that sense of actually this organisation is made up of different tribes and how how can you bring these people together and get them to talk, you know, the the same language sufficient to to do what the organisation is trying to do rather than pulling against each other. Um, Always fascinating,
0: isn't it, around the the subcultures within the culture of an organisation and I guess, is, is that where, if it was going through lots of lots of change at the time, is that where you started to get a passion for you know, the operational side plus the fact that you need to change as well? Is that where that started from that, that point?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it was a real coincidence, but my very first role was, was effectively working for what was a, an internal consultancy, I suppose. The Home Office knew it needed to change and it was spending a lot of money on external consultants and it decided to set up this internal consultancy effectively to grow the capability inside so um i learned you know all about lean i learned all about project management i learned all about change management and i I think it was a coincidence but it was an absolutely happy happy marriage because actually that was what i was interested in i wanted to go in and make a difference i wanted to make things better i've always had quite a strong um (sighs) I guess critical eye in some ways, as in I can see how things could be better, Mm. but well intentioned, wanting to do it, not to be critical for the sake of it or to pull things apart or to make people feel, you know, bad, but to make things better for, you know, the customers, the end users, the people that 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 sort of receive receive the organization's services or or, or products in whatever form.
0: I know you've done a lot of stuff around projects and change since then, haven't you? but at that point there, what, what were the sort of key things you were learning at that stage? So new into project management, new into team leadership, what sort of golden nuggets and ideas were you were you, you, you learning that you're still using today?
1: Yeah, so I think I think the first one is the one I've mentioned around the kind of the subcultures and the importance of understanding those subcultures. So even if you feel like you've got a great vision of what could be and how to make it so and you talk to the first group of people and they say yeah we're, we're with you Jess we're with you the very next group of people are going to say well that's a terrible idea for all of these reasons that you've not thought and you're an idiot and who are you to come and talk to us so actually I guess a, a much better appreciation of really knowing as much as you can the organization and mm-hmm. the, the cultures the subcultures within it so that's definitely one. Um, I think there's definitely something around, um, I, I guess, the, kind of the, the power of, of, of diverse teams as well. Mm. Um, so a little bit in this period of my life, but certainly in the next period, which was uh, five years working on the London 2012 Olympics, still from the Home Office, so I was still a civil servant. Um, there was definitely something around no one person, no one team, not even any one organization can do this thing. It has to be about people coming together. It has to be about bringing diverse experiences and perspectives and skills and knowledge and um, capabilities. because because that's how we're gonna get things done. And I remember feeling a little bit like that in one of my um, graduate scheme roles. Uh, It was working um, uh, in the asylum process. So it was very much working with the private sector, um, working with the immigration service who were the sort of the uniformed, we call them border force nowadays. And I was a non-uniformed sort of civilian, if you like. So actually, again, subcultures, but how can I bring these people together kind of get over our different, you know, hierarchical structures, which is a big deal in the civil service, um, and actually focus on the people that we're trying to support, which in that instance was was, was people that were claiming asylum for the, for the very first time in the UK. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think diversity was a, good, a big theme then.
0: Yeah, I think I think absolutely agree with that totally. And I think what I was picking up then when you were talking, I was thinking about projects. And yeah, you know, I'm going to pick up on the um, the London 2012 because everyone will know how successful it was and how amazing it was. Yeah, not just for an event, but but yeah, people still talk about how brilliant it was, and the fact that you were planning and, and working that for a long time. So we'll, we'll come back on that. But but what I'm picking up there, really, from a project and change point of view, is that understanding is almost like the first stage, isn't it? Understand the subcultures. Yeah. understand different people understand what's actually really going on understanding what the the purpose really is and i think what i see and you probably see this a lot as well in organizations where people rush into the the deliverables don't you you know we've got to build an olympic stadium right let's build it before stepping back and going actually when you think about the infrastructure and, and what happens after the olympics and all those sort of type questions i guess so tell us a little bit more about your learning from the olympics so, and i know it must have been amazing and There were some amazing teams put together. And I know some of my clients that were working on that that plan as well. And it was amazing what, what they actually did. So tell us a little bit more about that and what you did and what you learned from that
1: yeah absolutely so I joined kind of the kind of the Olympic program I think it was January 2008 so it was four and a half years to go and I'd just done this graduate scheme where I'd done 12 months here 12 months there so I I I kind of joined the Olympics thinking you know four and a half years to go there's no way I'm going to see it through like you know I'm used to variety and chopping and changing and moving about but anyway interesting to go in at the beginning help set it up and then I'll go and do something else I never for a million years thought that I'd still be there December 2012 doing the Over to Rio. Five five years spent on it, so it was absolutely brilliant. It it did change, you know, every six months. um, Partly because we were making progress, partly because the team got got much bigger. I think when I joined, there was four of us in the home office, and and during the summer of 2012, there was over 200. So you know, every six months, it felt like a different role in many ways. Things were so fast moving and, and, and developing. Um, and I loved it. I mean, frankly, it was absolutely brilliant, and if anyone ever gets the chance to do something that is, you know, so, um, you know, so, uh, such a great opportunity mm-hmm. to host the Olympic Games in your city, yeah, absolutely, absolutely brilliant.
0: Um, and and I think, and of, course, of course, we, uh, yeah, we talk, yeah, this is about leadership with the meaning, isn't it, the title of this podcast, so was that something that was really evident in the, in the Olympics, because it's almost like a, I guess it's a bit of a time-based project, isn't it? You got you got to start the Olympics at a certain date. I guess, yeah. but but there's a lot more to it, wasn't there? Than that? A lot more from a, I guess a politics point of view, but but also from a, a economy point of view, and and the uh, after what happens after the Olympics, all yes. that. You know, how do we reuse this? And I guess it was quite complex, wasn't it, from that viewpoint.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. And I think, you know, in some ways, the time scale, the, the kind of the, the deadline, you know, I can remember it to this day, 27th of July, 2012, just after 8pm. Um, you know, that was a real, real kind of imperative. But I think the purpose, the aim of what we were trying to achieve, particularly, um, because I was in the Home Office, we were responsible for overseeing everything to do with the safety and the security of the Games, All right. P- particularly from our perspective, we You know, it wasn't just about the deadline. It wasn't just we need to put on a games that has to start at that time. It was a this needs to be a great games. This is about bringing the best of everything that we can create together. And from a safety and security perspective, you know, we need it to be safe. We need it to be secure. But we also don't want those things to impinge on people having a great time and the enjoyment and the kind of the spirit of the game. I remember one senior police officer who was absolutely great a really great leader would quite routinely say you know this is a sporting event with a security overlay whereas quite a lot of people in the security community were thinking about it as a security Mm -hmm. event with a little bit of sport kind of thrown in if if, if we get chance Um, so having that real clear view of yes it needs to be safe yes it needs to be secure And our risk assessments measured fatalities, you know, one to five, five to 50, 50 to to a thousand, a thousand plus, you know. So we're talking about difficult things. Yeah, We need to do that, but we also need to do it in a way which means that, you know, families, young people, old people just have a brilliant day. The sport is great. The broadcasters get what they want. Usain gets his moment. Mo Farah gets his moment. All of that sort of stuff.
0: Because it, it, yeah, you know, they, they have the Olympic Games have been targeted before, haven't they? And it yeah. has been nightmare. So there's a, a massive risk, and, and it's not just London, was it? There was many sites across the UK, wasn't it? If I remember rightly? You know, different- yeah,
1: that's right. We had sites all across the UK, um, and I think, I mean, it, it was very vivid in our memories. I think we won the bid on a Wednesday um, back in two thousand and five, and then on the very next day, we obviously had the London bombings, the the, the 7-7 bombings, and then there were other terrorist incidents in the planning. Um, So I think, I don't know if you recall, there was was an attack at Glasgow airport, there were some Mm. really significant attacks in in Delhi, you know, the kind of, that was the first time that we saw people marauding with with firearms and stuff. So the threat picture was quite difficult. Mm. Um, I think we were routinely at a threat level of, of severe and I think at least once or twice we did go to critical during the planning phase. Um, So, yeah, so I think from a leadership perspective, there was probably a lesson there around having that really clear purpose, um, bringing the right organisations in the way that I've described together, because nobody, no one person could could do it on its own. Um, And I think probably also... um, There's probably something else around kind of, you know, you need leaders at all levels. So I was definitely not very senior at at this part of my career, Um, but because I was, you know, capable and particularly capable at bringing people together and getting the best out of them, actually, my responsibilities sort of expanded and expanded. And I I think by the end, I was overseeing the budget was about 600 million and Mm -hmm. reporting to ministers and all of this sort of stuff. So I I think there's something about, you know, needing leaders at all level. And even if your job title isn't, you know, senior leader or or whatever, actually leadership is about doing the right thing and role modeling it for others and taking the initiative. And one thing I often say to people who, feel that they're not in leadership positions is actually just start just start demonstrating some of this stuff because actually that is what leadership's about it's not necessarily having the big budget and the big team and and the responsibility it might be those things but it but it's probably also you know just just being um behaving in ways that are really helpful to to the organization and what you're trying to achieve
0: it's really interesting you know, a lot of people when when you, when you hear the word project, they so immediately go to you know the process and filling out forms don't they and mm. <laughs> all, that, all that template sort of stuff which which obviously is important but but what you've talked about there really is is really the important stuff around teams and teams people yeah. culture behavior how, how did you how did you you know because you were rapidly expanding was it was something like four to 200 very quickly yeah how did you how did you build the teams and how did you make sure that the teams you're know, bought into the culture and bought into the purpose and and we're operating at meaning because you know, if you if you empower people you still need that direction, don't you? Um, you you can't yeah, you need autonomy, direction, and support. You know, otherwise it's abdication. So what what was happening you know, from a tactical level to actually make all that happen? And tips and hints that you can share with us.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think 2008, I always kind of categorise as just trying to work out, you know, which way is up and who's supposed to be doing more and, you know, Mm. kind of getting getting organised. 2009 was when things started to really motor and I think... Um, there was some really good work that was done to develop the strategy so the Olympic security safety and security strategy and within that there was quite a clear programmatic structure so we had five really clear strategic objectives and um, you you know effectively the program was built around those five so each of the five had a program leader um, they had some project support they had some you know people and I was one of these people kind of you know some good mid-level people who were capable and you know go-getting and could take the initiative to kind of get stuff done um so there was quite a clear programmatic structure and and if i'm really honest i fought against some of that stuff at that time like i just wanted to get on with it you know i do not need to spend another three hours talking about assumptions between different parts of the program we've got work to do um so i was i was probably a bit of a thorn in the side um at that point but i think i hope in some ways that was a good challenge because mm. we had we had a lot of management consultants that were brought in to do some of this programmatic stuff um and they absolutely brought value. And, and you know, we, we needed them to give it that sense of direction and, and who's doing what. Um, but I think getting the balance right between sort of planning and organizing and doing, you know, was a really yeah. important balance to get right.
0: It's always, a tra- I'm glad you said the word tra- balance because it is about that, isn't it? We need both, but, yeah. but sometimes the pendulum can swing too far one way, can't it? Yeah. And getting that balance right is a ongoing management task, I guess, isn't it, to get it right?
1: yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um and I think yeah I think on you know overall we did get that balance right most of the time and so by the time we got to sort of you know 2010 it was sort of high level planning 2011 getting into the detail planning and, and sort of testing and you know mm. we, we ran test exercises and, and various sort of um you know op- op- operational exercises to to, to to ensure that we were ready
0: all the what ifs I guess under you know the, the red teaming and stuff like that I, I guess how did because obviously you were involved in the safety and security side how did that then fit into the bigger picture because there must have been many many other themes like infrastructure yes. uh you know travel I guess there was another one wasn't it the stadium itself the locations yeah. how did that all fit together then
1: yeah I mean it, 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 I, another good really good question um so my particular responsibilities were all around the safety and security of venues so we had a lot to do with um the olympic delivery authority that was building all of the new venues so the stadium and the athletes village and stuff um but also with the organizing committee locog who you know were effectively the people that were actually organizing the events so the infrastructure was handed over to locog to, to to operate so a big part of my role was sort of working across those those organizations and then as you say safety and security was was part of a much wider games readiness piece and again it was a very programmatic structure so the government you know knew which government department was responsible for each of those domains um and it had a board that brought the, the, the most senior people. So this is right at the top of the Home Office, uh, right at the top of the Department for Transport or whatever it might be, um, right at the top of the organizing committee, a board that brought those people together, you know, as you'd expect, there were reports, there was an there was a whole lot of reports,
0: um, <laughs> yeah. there were
1: risk registers, all yeah. of that sort of stuff. But one thing I think that would be set, would be worth mentioning. Um, and I, I can't quite remember whether it was a security thing which became a games wide thing or if it was a games wide thing that, that we adopted. I think probably it came from security. And that was this basis of sort of risk based risk-based work if that makes sense mm. the whole heap of things that could go wrong we haven't got time to mitigate and prevent all of them so actually let's take a, a sort of a real risk-based approach to to everything we do and and the reason i mentioned that is it's it's something i've taken through into my later world um I, I think it was very inherent in how the safety and the security world operated anyway but it was adopted across the games and it was really this idea that there are you know 101 things that go wrong or 101 things that we need to think about and and do realistically we have not got time and resources to do all of it so actually let's prioritize and think about what the biggest what the biggest risk is or what the biggest opportunity is even to the extent of organizing um agendas to make sure that we started with the 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 things that were the most important first Um, it sounds really obvious when you say it but but quite often you know
0: yeah there's yeah. a
1: format that we follow when we always talk about X and then we always talk about Y, but actually if Y is burning or Y is a massive opportunity, you know,
0: yeah, I think
1: that's, is setting that, that prioritization.
0: That's the key is that prioritization. We always talk about, you know, focus on the controllables or, you know, focus on things that will have the most impact and the easiest to do first, you <laughs> know, get those, get those yeah. done. And I think that's, you know, that risk-based work sounds, sounds really good. And yeah, you know, a lot of it is around scenario planning as well, isn't it? And removing the blockers yeah, yeah. And, uh, and identifying the risk and then killing what you can
1: yeah absolutely i think that's absolutely right um and, and i guess one of the most most obvious examples you know from the olympics um, and particularly from a security perspective was was when g4s um mm. who were uh contracted to deliver a certain number of security guards I, if i recall correctly it was about two or week two or three weeks before um the opening ceremony said look we're not we're not going to have all of this ready we'll get you the guards but they're not going to be there on day one and you know we know that's not good enough so mm-hmm. obviously then you know the military were were brought in and I was um I was part of the, the team that was working alongside the military and and the organizing committee and, and G4S to basically get that back on track and so that was a real kind of right what do we need to do today what do we need to mm-hmm. do tomorrow what do we need to do for a week ahead um so yeah some really interesting sort of um lessons yeah. i suppose around around that
0: i guess keeping agile keeping flexible yeah keeping uh, yeah in control through regular reviewing and reflecting so you can pick up these yeah. things early can't you and then do something about it so yeah. it must have been a fast fascinating journey through that and an insightful one and, and lots of learning from there so what happened next on your journey then
1: So I stayed at the Home Office till the very end of 2012, did the handover um, to to Rio, and we also did a bit of a handover to Glasgow because they were hosting the Commonwealth Games in in 2014. So that was really interesting. Um, I think it was about that time that I got a letter through the the door which said, um, you've been uh, not appointed for um, an OBE for the services to the games, and I was wow. completely floored by that. I <laughs> had not expected it in a million years, okay. and I—I I, I don't know. The only way I can think well of is—it's—it's it's like the cherry on the cake. You know what I mean? The cake was already yeah. amazing. The icing was already really tasty, and then somebody put a little cherry on top, and it was—you um you know—perfection.
0: Well done. Well deserved. Fantastic.
1: Thank you. No, we appreciate it. um But I kind of needed a bit of a change of scene. So all of the other programs. You know that were going on in government at the time were quite. Um, I don't know. They just, they just, they just didn't grab me. Quite a lot of them were technology driven, and although I'm, you know, I, you know, I understand enough about technology, and I can appreciate that we need it. That's not really my bag. I'm much more about kind of people and organisations, and I just, I just couldn't get excited about the the, the programs that, that that sort of, you know, I was sort mm. of being encouraged to think about. So went and joined PA Consulting um so kind of management consulting in their project management practice and i spent a year a really interesting year actually with royal mail um helping do some assurance of their biggest um their biggest programs technology programs actually ironically so i ended up doing the technology anyway um but that was 2013 so it was the year when they did their initial public offering so it was Uh, Yeah, quite an important year, quite a sort of a significant year, quite a lot of organisational change, as well as, you know, overhauling and and modernising a lot of their technology. Um, And I think probably a lesson from that regarding leadership is just around um, the value of an external perspective. And, um, you know, sometimes you're too close. You can't quite see the wood for the trees when you're in it. but, but But the value of having somebody else sort of alongside you. I did that for about 18 months or so, um, and then our, a job came up at the Open University, which was close to home, but more, much more importantly than that, it was an organisation which really kind of, you know, sang to my heart and my sense of mission, so, you know, I went to the Home Office because I wanted to do something that really mattered, and I went to the OU for exactly the same reason, you know, the, the OU has got this fantastic mission about making education available to all, particularly people that have missed out the first time round, or maybe they've got caring responsibility is a really high proportion of disabled students um, so i went to lead the portfolio office and then a couple of years later i got promotion to um, director of change and improvement loads of lessons relating to leadership i mean it's a really challenging environment because on the one hand you've got this massive fantastic mission and this kind of status as as being a kind of a you know almost a national treasure of an organization you've got really committed really talented colleagues you've also got a lot of scope to improve because the processes and the systems are really quite antiquated and, and creaking at the seams but on the other hand the culture is really tricky i mean all right universities generally have got quite a tricky culture you know academics and 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 professional services you know sort of not maybe understanding each other but even more so at the OU it, it felt very tribal they they'd also been experiencing an awful lot of change that wasn't bits of it were well managed but it wasn't really coordinated as a whole and it wasn't clear to people how things stuck together um there'd been a lot of change at the very top of the organization and the kind of trust had been sort of you know nibbled away over time and I think because it was an organization that a lot of people really that worked there really believed in and, and had probably worked there for 10, 15, 20, 25 years they had really deeply held feelings about what the organisation should do in terms of change and and, and how to do that. For example, there was a real expectation that actually decisions are by consensus. Um, You know, you've got five or six thousand full time staff, you've got five or six thousand associate lecturers um, and you've got a student base of one hundred and seventy thousand. You can't take decisions by consensus. Um, But that really was quite Uh, a widely held expectation that actually the level of engagement needed to be much, much higher than than you might have at any other organization. Mm. So quite a tricky place and quite a tricky role um, to to be doing at the time. I think if I think about some leadership lessons, I think the biggest thing for me is that in that kind of environment, change is always about the people. You know, the systems were quite complicated and the processes were quite complicated. But you could get that absolutely perfect if you've not really invested the time in talking to people and listening to people and hearing their views and really genuinely considering and trying to work out what could be incorporated and feeding back really, really explicitly on why the whole their perspective couldn't be incorporated Mm. all of that was for nothing frankly um so it didn't really matter how good your enterprise architecture was and you know the the quality of the software and, and all of that sort of stuff it was really just about the people and you know I think I got some bits right in that journey but there was quite a lot that I look back and think oh goodness if if we'd been able to have done that or you know why didn't why didn't we you know raise a flag and say actually this is too much we need to slow down um so yeah so some some quite difficult difficult moments there um w- but working for an organization that I still really really love and and you know have fond feelings for
0: you got you got a tricky culture uh you've got very strong minds so you've got a consensus type sort of culture going on mm-hmm. as well decision making uh, and you've got to make change happen so I guess the challenge in you know, it early on isn't it is how yeah, the question always is how do we get the business to really want this change? How do we get the people to want the change? And that's that's the tricky bit, isn't it? Because most of the effort and money gets spent on the, the technology uh, and probably not enough time and effort and focus, as you said there, on, on the people side about how to win their hearts and minds and, yeah. and give it meaning, I guess, which is obviously the title of this this podcast. So what 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 have you learned from that? And how do you how do you give things like that meaning? How do you get people on board to to get them to really want this change and welcome it?
1: Yeah so I think you know when when I look back at my career overall this idea of doing something that's meaningful to me has always been really important and I think the OU was the place where I thought goodness the OU is really really meaningful to lots of other people as well but actually we're in, in some ways that's hindering us in some ways that's helping us and how can you really kind of harness it um I think it's definitely the case for me um i hope i've brought this into kind of how i lead as well that actually if you can help people find meaning in what they're doing they will enjoy it more they will perform better they will role model the kind of behaviors and, and values that you want to have um but i think the ou was also a really good example of where you know just because you're working for an organization that you believe in it could be really difficult and your sense of whether something's meaningful can really be questioned you know there were definitely moments where I thought goodness I'm just banging my head against a wall or even worse I'm making things worse you know (laughs) I've I've had interactions where people actually kind of were reasonably happy and now they're reasonably unhappy Um, goodness how do you how do you make that happen Um, and I've been doing some sort of thinking about this I've I've recently started studying for a master's and um, one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in is how you can help people find meaningful meaningful work and how you can help leaders find find meaning, you know, leaders Mm. can find meaning in their teams. And I think one of the key things that has really kind of resonated with me about is, is is this idea that it's not kind of continual. So you can have moments where you feel like, yes, this is great, this is really meaningful. We're making progress and this matters. And then actually other moments where that feels quite remote. And likewise it's not, it's not wholly great. It's not wholly good news. Some bits of it can be a bit a bit poignant even or a little bit sort of tinged with sadness in some ways because actually maybe you've not been able to seize an opportunity because it just was too much at the time for that for that organization to take. And so you've had, had to let it go. Um
0: is this where, where your interest and in, in what you do now around coaching came in? Because I know you trained at Animas, hmm. didn't you? And uh you mentioned now you're doing your uh, MSC. Is it what applied is it applied positive psychology and coaching psychology? I think I yeah, think that's the, right. So, yeah that's so, right yeah. Is, is that because one, it's one of the things I when, when I'm working on change programs myself and as you know we get brought in from the outside to to challenge them and ask them difficult questions I often say well where's the coaching plan you know mm-hmm. and there isn't one ever <laughs> normally there's just a, a quick training session on the new technology or whatever and that's it and that whole you know aspect of coaching is is a really important part about change isn't it? and yeah. you think about organizations now around you know we're, we're in a world of constant change so you know, the coaching style of leadership and, and having coaches in the business is really really important because I, I always think I always find it amazing when an organization is going to go through massive change yet they don't develop loads of coaches before they go through that change they yes, sort of do it absolutely. afterwards so so is that is that where it started to come from from the yeah you know, the challenging yeah you know, the learning you had from the Olympic Games, you know what you'd learned from the civil service beforehand and and obviously what you'd work you know learns from from working in a, in a major consultancy is that sort of where your passion started to, to come, because I think coaching is one of the best ways, isn't it, to help people to slow down. I call it speeding up by slowing down and, and really think about, well, why am I doing this? <laughs> I guess yeah. through, the, through the pandemic, a lot of people have started to do that themselves, haven't they? They're you thinking, yeah, what what's this for? Yeah, what's my why? Why, why am I here? you yeah, know who am I? What, what am I doing? Does this really give me meaning? Does this help me live a wonderful life? And I guess does that is that where you're at at the moment in, in your sort of your work around you're know, helping people to to get meaning
1: yeah absolutely so it's it's definitely a big theme in my coaching and i completely agree graham i think you know if if um you know the the whole premise of coaching is that the person that's receiving the coaching has what they need to make the best of the situation to achieve what they need they just need a little bit of help to kind of bring it out of them or untangle it in their mind or whatever it might be so actually my um my interest and my passion for organizational change and coaching there's a really really big sweet spot between the two because if I can help other people to be you know just just a little bit more effective and a little bit happier and, and have a little bit more meaning in what they do then they will filter that through to their teams and, and the whole team and the whole organization will, will be more effective mm. um, so yeah so it's a really big a really big theme for me in, in my coaching um and yeah, it does feel like, you know, just in the last sort of six to 12 months, that, that sweet spot between all of these different things that I've been interesting, interested in have kind of really come together and it's, it's really exciting.
0: That sounds right. And obviously, yeah, bringing up a family as well at the same time.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the small, that, just that small thing of, uh, yeah, because of
0: the parent. <laughs> <laughs> it's an important part though. you sort of think about meaning. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I'm i not a big fan of this, this concept called work-life balance, you know, I think that that comes back from the dark age, and it went When we had to work in factories down the road because no other jobs to do and we hated it, but we did it because we needed the money to live. And yeah, you go to work, you hate it and then come home and have a life. But I think it's more, isn't it? It's bigger than that now, isn't it? Around, you know, meaning for me is around making sure that, you know, your work is part of that as well as yes. your home life and, and getting that connected and, and enjoying that. I see so many people that they have these, amazing aspirational goals that aren't aligned to their values and it's tearing them apart and yeah. or they're they're in in work for the wrong reasons and they haven't actually never sat down like why am i doing this they just fall into that trap so i guess the coaching element is is really important what what have you found from a from a leader because we talk about this a lot when we're developing leaders around you know the importance to be a world-class coach sure. um what would you say that if you were getting into coaching and starting to change your, your style into more uh, of a coaching conversation type approach rather than a professional coach what would you say the tips and hints that that you've learned for coaching
1: the key behavior the key muscle that you need to strengthen that 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 might be quite difficult if you've not sort of been a coach before is really this idea about coaching being non-advisory so um you know, not giving your advice, but actually instead holding the space, creating the environment where somebody feels safe and then asking questions that sort of help to probe and explore their thinking. Mm. I think as leaders, and I'm absolutely guilty of this, I um, we feel and our teams feel the pressure of needing to get on and make progress and do things quickly and therefore um, you know asking for advice or offering advice have you tried this speak to so and so the way we did it last time was x you know it's just just feels helpful and actually um, from a coaching perspective it's much more helpful for the the, the, the coachee the person being coached to actually think it through, work that out for themselves, they're much more likely to come up with other alternatives, which could be different and could well be better than the established way of doing it or or how the leader themselves would do it. So Mm -hmm. that's something that I love about coaching but it really is a muscle that I have to keep working on um e- even to the extent that you know I, I was um, I was doing some coaching training at the weekend as part of my master's and I was being coached and I was um uh, kind of the, the topic that I brought into the coaching space was very much around kind of getting stuff done and making progress and then we moved roles and I was suddenly the coach and the other person sort of watching me like, oh, my goodness, you're like a completely different person. Because mm. actually, you know, my natural style, and this is very much developed over my career, as, as well as being, I think, quite a natural personality trait is to is to make things happen, is to get stuff done, is to keep moving, to keep making progress. And actually, as a coach, that's completely irrelevant what I'm thinking and what I would do about it. It's about what the client Mm-hmm. thinks feels wants to do um, so that for me is the, the the sort of the the biggest thing that i've had to learn and that i would sort of encourage people to think about think about if they're making that transition
0: that's so true isn't it i think you know in today's busy world it's very easy to get on the hamster wheel isn't it and and you know get into stuck in management really which is you know directing and and getting things done as you say and getting tasks done and you know getting caught up on this speed of, of operation and confusing you know uh, operating at pace with with being busy and I guess I suppose the coaching style is is a, a chance to have a, a real conversation with someone, it? Mm-hmm. To, to really help them and to help them to reflect and to to learn and grow and and really think about what they're doing and, and build that awareness and, and desire to to want to change, I guess. So it's a it's a key element that we all mm-hmm. need to work on. And, and you're right, I I like the idea it's a muscle, you know, mm-hmm. and we have to work on that. And I guess if you if you think about that analogy, I guess if you're Stuck in management, then that management muscle gets really big, and your coaching muscle drops off, and your leadership muscle drops off, uh, and, and then it's harder to use is isn't it? I guess it's a bit like having your arm in plaster or whatever; the muscle yeah. disappears.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's a it's a tough a tough one, though, isn't it? because obviously you know you're you're rewarded and recognised for getting things done, but actually by by slowing down and reflecting a little bit and using a coaching style really 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 helps do you find that helps to um to help the meaning so a couple of times you mentioned there through the conversation around the importance of joining the dots and make sure it all fits together and you know we've got these five was it five program themes i think you said within within the security program uh, portfolio i guess uh, do you find that the, the coaching conversation is, is a great way to help people to really understand the, the meaning because the big thing you know from um from a military point of view, my, my background, you know, is military, and and yeah, as a leader, your job is to share the mission, you know, and, and give it meaning for them people to go and work out how they're going to you know, implement it and, and make it happen. So, I, so I guess, do you, do you find that 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 is something that that will really help that coaching style? To do that? Yeah,
1: I, I definitely do. I think, um, you know, recognizing that the other person has to find meaning for themselves mm. and actually, you know obviously sort of we we can talk about what the organizational purpose is or you know in the kind of the the military example what the mission is but actually everybody's um, own personal meaning in that will be a bit different there's a really interesting concept which i think it's really helpful for for leaders and managers to be aware of which is around job crafting Um, and and effectively i think the the basic concept of it is that um, we can find meaning in different ways so we can find meaning in the tasks that we do So you could try and bring more of those tasks into into your role. But you can also find meaning in the way that you cognitively frame what you do. And I guess an example of this would be, um, you know, the the person who's working on the supermarket checkout Mm. is not helping you purchase things. What what it might mean for her is um, actually I'm I'm um, I'm having a conversation with a customer who might not have a conversation with another person that day and therefore yeah sure i'm swiping the things across the 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 you know the um i can't remember what the word's called but you know the, the thing that that reads the barcode yeah but actually much more important is the interaction that she's having with the elderly person or the, the person um who might be feeling a bit lonely who wants to stop and chat for an extra minute about you know the weather another small talk
0: mm-hmm. so there's a
1: cognitive way of, of thinking about jobs and then the third way is the relational um aspect so you know it, it's a lot of people go to work because they need the paycheck there's absolutely nothing wrong with that but actually if they can find some kind of relational meaning um being a good colleague going for lunch every day with 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 bob and tony or whatever it might be mm-hmm. and actually there's meaning for them in that again that will help what they do at work because they're part of something and they belong it, it isn't just about the paycheck now it's about something else as well so i think recognizing that um, if you can use coaching conversations to help people find what their personal meaning is in their work, um, it doesn't have to be a grand, you know, I want to save the world and I'm going to do it through my role here. Um, it can be much simpler, but actually much, much more impactful. And tapping into that, helping other people tap into that, I think can be really powerful.
0: It's hey, I've got a client who um, asked us to go and help them up in Scotland uh, for a couple of days and they've just joined a, a new business and, and wanted to really understand the leadership team i didn't catch that could you try again <laughs> oh, that's my that's my big speed going up there. <laughs> well, that's bizarre i don't know why that went off um what was i saying then oh yeah so uh it yeah you know, it's, it's really interesting that, that you mentioned that because i've got a client that we went up to scotland to help them to really get to know the leadership team and, and his he's a real commercial animal and, and getting things done and he's up there to turn the business around but you know his first step is to really get to understand the leadership team, the individuals, and, and the journey was exactly what you mentioned there, was really to go through a process to help them to articulate you know, their meaning, you know why they came to work, what drives them, their, their journey, their history. And we didn't talk about work once, really, it was all about them. And yeah, at the end of those two days, the team were in such a great place and the trust had started to, to build, the understanding had started to build. Yeah, and that relationship started to build so it seems in a good place now and now they can get into the the more okay so what's our business plan and what we're going to yeah. do and, and drive so that that giving meaning I think is you know such a a wonderful thing to actually do and I don't think people do that enough and we have a, an exercise we, we call living a wonderful life which is around getting people to sit down and, and in a reflective state and either going walking or outside or whatever and just sit down on a piece of paper and say well what is a wonderful life for you Mm-hmm. yeah we don't mean the tangible goals you want to achieve but but what what is yeah how, how do you and I think the word is living isn't it rather than process of it what what are things yeah. you're doing in your life that that really I guess in your language give you meaning and once people understand that then you start to create this sense of belonging don't you that and it's when I I noticed when I left the military and joined the corporate world it was a, a lack of a sense of pride Mm. you know where you know, you'd you feel honored to be part of a team in the military and and there was a lot of meaning behind it and, and you did get to know each other really really well and lots of trust but but in the couple of we get caught up on our own deliverables and we forget about this yeah. this important aspect of you know what are we doing here and, and why is that so important and you know the that that element that you've talked about is absolutely crucial I love the, the quote on your website by the way and if I can read it out it's a wonderful quote I've not seen it before it says. Um, life can easily become a muddle a blur an unmanageable tailspin that's so true isn't it
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, but
0: through the space and time that coaching provides you can think deeper see more clearly reflect more broadly and as a result take the steps required to achieve your potential and be happier and more fulfilled at work and in your personal life wow that's a that's a great quote
1: I think that's a Jess Anderson original. I think. Oh, fantastic! That's why, that's why you've not heard it before. That's why
0: not heard before. So that that gives you meaning, doesn't it? Really, in terms yeah. of yeah, the value you actually add in in your business, and to help people to do that uh, is really important. If if you were to um, you know step out of coaching and and uh, I guess move into mentoring, I guess because obviously there's a distinction there, isn't it, mm-hmm. between you know coaching, which is as you said before, is getting them to think, whereas mentoring is more. You know sharing your your ideas and thoughts about how you tackle that particular situation if you were in mentoring mode and you were to give advice around someone moving into a leadership role now what would be the the four or five key things that you would say are you know the things you need to be world class at to, to be a successful leader in today's world
1: oh that's a really good question I think that um this this idea of meaningfulness is really important so I, I put that number one
0: yeah
1: know what is meaningful about your work and help your people to to, to 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 know that for themselves as well I think there's probably something around um playing to your strengths and and playing to other people's strengths so you know a, an easy trap To fall into when you become more senior and when you take on leadership responsibilities is feeling that you need to be great at everything. And actually, what leadership often gives you is the opportunity to say, you know what, I'm really not very good at X and Y and Z, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to find, you know, I'm going to build the team that enables us to all play to our strengths. So, not just things that you're good and bad at, but also what gives you energy and what doesn't give you energy. So, you know, keep in mind the power of diverse teams and use that to build a team where everyone is playing to their strengths i suppose would definitely be a second one um i think there's probably something around kind of looking after yourself and the importance of role modeling um what that means so i definitely know that in some instances in my career i've been pretty stressed and really very close to kind of burnout and I look back on that and I think oh goodness why did I do that you know I kind of knew the signs and I didn't really respond but I also feel like oh goodness what what did that look like to the people that I was leading at the time because actually I wasn't role modeling sensible working hours and being able to switch off and what was the impact on them so I think there's definitely something around looking after yourself not just for yourself but also because of what that means for for, for 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 your team and i think the fourth thing i'd say graham is probably around um, you know spending the time and, and and the investment of time in knowing yourself if i think about the most impactful leadership development that i've done over the years and i've done various you know leadership mm. development programs it's been absolutely brilliant you know almost all of the value has come from me knowing myself a bit better as opposed to learning the you know leadership theories or, or, or specific techniques um, there's something about you know knowing who you are as a leader knowing what makes you a really great leader back to strengths but also where actually you know you, you need to do some work or you need a team that's going to help you you know fill out some of the things that you're not so great at um, so yeah, so I think definitely investing in, in knowing yourself and, um, and being self-aware, I think, is also really important.
0: That's so true, and I think you know, I, I remember years ago someone said to me that, yeah, you know, the minute you stop learning, it's game over. I yeah, think that's so true, isn't it, as a leader? You know, and uh, as I as I turn sixty uh, this year, that uh, I'm still learning stuff every single day. I'm learning stuff about myself, and mm-hmm. that that time to reflect on that. So I, I love those those four elements. So. Yeah, lead with meaning. I think that's the key one, isn't it? The purpose, yeah. understanding what that's all about, spending time on that. Play to your strengths. Really, yeah. I like the way you said, find things that give you energy. Because mm. I think that that links to the third one, wasn't it? About looking after yourself yeah. and the resilience. I guess, isn't it? Around, yeah. You know, how do you how do you build ways of working that that you know, re-energize yourself? Because I think leadership is a is a tough gig, isn't it? Because you're giving all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be careful, I guess. You know, in your coaching practice, you're you're actually you're working with people often in difficult situations and you're giving lots of energy so how do you how do you get energy yourself so that resilience and I think is an important element of it and then as you say you know, that ongoing journey about learning about yourself and we always talk about you know, learning connecting and applying I think mm-hmm. you're right yeah you, know, you can you can learn the latest theory or read the latest book or thoughts around leadership but what does that really mean for you and how you connect that and then putting all that together and finding your way. I think that's the key mm. thing. I always say leadership development starts with who you are, then to work out why you do what you do, which is the meaning bit, then work out what you should do and then work out how to do it. And it's, it's as simple as that, isn't it really? So some really, really, really great insights there. And of course, if um, people want to get a hold of you, I guess they can email you or put your email address if that's okay, into the, the details. Um, if they want to find meaning and, and, uh, you know, get some support from a, a world-class coach then that would help and I guess on your website I guess we can put those those details on can't we about how to, to make contact with you is probably the best port of call
1: yeah can I, can really. I say
0: a, a huge huge thank you I, I know we you know, we could talk for hours on this we've been doing virtually an hour already which is which is incredible it's gone really really quick and for me there's some some really good insights there and I think you know you've, you've worked in an environment which is pretty tough And that you look at the civil service and yeah, I've, I've worked with, with them on and off over the years as well. It's, it's not the easiest environment to, to work in, is it? Um, plus, you then went for an even harder one, which is into the academic world, which is... <laughs> you like a challenge, don't you? Definitely. I do, I do. <laughs> but, but I think the message there is isn't it, is around um, a, a lot of it, what, what I picked up from that was the importance of understanding. And it's interesting, when I, when I you know, teach project and change and programme stuff, I always start with stage one of anything is understanding, Mm. you know understanding why you're doing it let's understand the meaning behind it let's understand who's involved in it. and that that's often forgotten isn't it And we leap straight into the right okay let's get some stuff done which we're all yeah. guilty of aren't we which I think yeah. you mentioned as well <laughs> and getting that yeah. getting that balance right and, and I call it spinning up by slowing down but it's been a pleasure Jess and uh thank you very much for your time I know you're a busy lady and uh I'd say just a big thank you from us
1: no thank you ever so much Graham I've really enjoyed it thank you yeah.
0: A big thank you for listening to the Leadship Laid Bear podcast with me, Graham Wilson. For more information on our guest leader and to find out how we can support you, check out the links in the description and look out for our next leadership podcast. Remember, leadership is all about taking action. Make sure you connect and apply the lessons learned. Have fun and bye for now.